the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Good morning, I'm Catherine Zox. As you know, I'm your social worker with a microphone, and you are listening to VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. You can listen to us every Wednesday from 10 to 11 Eastern Time live, and then at the end of the day, we archive the show, and you can listen to it whenever you want. So this morning, as always, we have two great guests, and uh, my first guest is already here with us. Uh, He's going to be talking to us about uh, autism because uh, April is National Autism Awareness Month, but we thought we'd kind of get the go-ahead and start doing our show and uh, uh, talking about autism in March because we can talk about it any time we want to, especially as a social worker. I, uh, uh, for many years, had a lot of uh, contact with patients and families and moms and dads who had uh, children with autism, Uh, but there's a lot of new stuff that's uh, happened and new on the horizon. We're going to be talking about that. Uh, with our guest, Vincent Redmond. Vincent is the uh, regional director for the Center for Autism and Related Disorders, and you can go to that website at recoverautism.com. He's an autism expert, Vincent Redmond, and uh, he has recovered many, many children from autism. Also, my second guest is Mary Gentile. She is a professor. She's the author of Giving Voice to Values. That's right, values. We don't talk too much about values today, but it's really important that we do so. Speaking your mind when you know it's right. How many times have you not spoken your mind when you know it's right, but you say something or agree with something just for convenience? And she's talking specifically in the workplace, making choices and, and, uh, and decisions that perhaps are not ethical, not the right thing to do. So her new book is Giving Voice to Values, How to Speak You Your Mind When You Know What's Right. So we're going to talk to her in a half an hour. Uh, but right now we have Vincent on the line, Vincent Redman, and uh, autism, as I said, is in April, Autism Awareness Month. We're starting early. I guess it's still February, actually. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Vincent. Good morning. Thank you. Yeah, well, I guess there is a lot to talk about when it comes to autism, and even as a social worker, having not been in the field for a while, uh, uh, there's a lot for me to catch up on. I know that, and and then I'm going to let you talk, I promise, but uh, one of the things, why it's important to talk about it, because apparently one in every 110 children in America is diagnosed with an autism spectrum disorder. We're going to find out what that is, and that is more common than juvenile diabetes, pediatric cancer, and childhood AIDS combined. Wow, that's a huge number, so we do have to address the problem. Um, where do we start? Should we, do you want to first tell us, and listeners who obviously perhaps aren't professionals, how do we define autism? What is it? Yeah, it's crazy, isn't it? I mean, the, the prevalence of autism is, is just going through the roof. And, then, and what autism is, autism is a, a, a developmental disorder that you see early on with with children, and what it is, it manifests itself with um, a decrease or inability for um, for them to develop um, with most normal developmental stages, with their language, with their social skills, 
with their abilities to learn academically, as well as you'll see a, um, a set of excessive behaviors, which could be excessive tantruming, it could be um, self-injurious behaviors, or it could be what we call stereotypic or repetitive behaviors, where they do these kind of odd behaviors over and over and over again. And what, um, what we look at is you know, how, what the symptomatology is across what, what's the autism spectrum, how severe are they in all of those developmental stages, as well as how are those excessive behaviors hindering the way they learn or the way they, you know, function on a day-to-day basis. So, uh, Vincent, let's stop here for a minute because, you, as you say, there's a wide spectrum. You can have really, uh, on the, let's take a far to the right, we'll say, where they have the children have outbursts and crying and tantrums and all kinds of behaviors that are related to perhaps to frustration, to the other end where there's just some maybe slow developmental things that should be happening to your what? To your baby, to an infant in the first year of life. When can parents start recognizing that perhaps your child may have a problem with autism or may be suffering from the condition? Is it a condition or a disease or how do we define it? We define it as a disorder. Disorder. And, and, uh, yeah, and diagnosing can actually begin at, you know, 16, 18 months. A lot of the early signs that you'll see is lack of eye contact, lack of social bonding with the with uh, caregivers, um, delayed in their language, not repeating, imitating actions or words. Um, again, looking at those excessive, more uh, stereotypic or repetitive behaviors, lining cars up, stacking things, having to have things in very peculiar, um, you know, uh, uh, routines. Uh, looking at wheels spinning, those types of things you can you can see very early on. Now, it's the severity of those behaviors. I think every child going through developmental stages has, you know, what's considered the norm of um, acquisition. But when we look at children with autism, it's a severe delay in any of these skills or a severe increase in those excessive skills. Will a pediatrician be aware of these? Are pediatricians in the United States, the American Pediatric Association, are they well-versed in asking parents the right kinds of questions? Because you do take your baby, you know, at least every month in the beginning to see the physician, and then I forget what it is after that. But so that they ask the parents the questions so that they can have, uh, be, you know, access early detection. It's my experience that the pediatricians are much, much better at diagnosing or at least seeing the symptoms and, and referring um, their patients to um, professionals that would be able to diagnose them. Back 20 years ago when I had began, when I began in this field, um, pediatricians were still very unaware of the symptoms of autism. You still had a lot of old-school thoughts of this is more of a nurturing parenting issue than it is an actual um, you know, diagnosis or an actual disorder. But now with with the increase in prevalence, the increase in education, and I think the increase in the push from the, you know, from the medical community, it's much more di- or much more detected by pediatricians. Well, you mentioned two things because that's the you know, I, that's what I was uh, familiar with like 20 years ago, they blamed if it, your child suffered from autism and had this kind of like rigid behavior and not being able to connect with uh, individuals in a, in a, you know, in the way you're supposed to at a certain developmental age, we blamed it on the mother. You had a cold, rejecting mother. So with that kind of a diagnosis, even if a mother or a father saw that their child perhaps had some of these symptoms, you wouldn't want to say anything necessarily because they blamed it on you. So Right, ne- right. Yeah, so now tell us where, how... You know, now we need, because I know this has changed, like the cause, why, how, why do, how do we get it? How does your child develop autism? Where does it come from? 
Well, the, the actual pinpoint, I mean, that's where a lot of the research currently right now is, is trying to pinpoint, is it, is it you know, uh, uh, genetic, is it, you know, from toxins in the environment, you know, we, we, we've heard every theory under the sun. But what we have determined so far through research is that um, there's a predisposition um, in, you know, in certain families' genes that are susceptible to mental disorders, either it be depression, anxiety, autism, and then when they come in contact with either environmental toxins or they, um, any, you know, head, early, early head injuries or they're, you know, they're uh, uh, put in an environment in which the, the learning isn't, um, isn't accessible, that they can, that's when that can trigger the predisposition and start, you know, the developmental delays that we see that we can diagnose as autism. Okay, so that makes a lot of sense. Also, as I understand it now, and uh, I actually I went on your re- website and was listening to one of the, the interviews that was being done, but I uh, had another guest on the show, too, a physician, and apparently genes, even though we may have a predisposition to some kind of a disorder like autism, genes can be altered. I mean, I used to think, and I think many people did, that you know, once you had a predisposition, it's in your genes, that's it, but that's not necessarily true. The way people interact with you, how you... Uh, interact with your environment actually can change genes so that you is, is that true absolutely and I think that's that's one of the common hypotheses right now is if they can identify the genes and identify the predisposition markers that will be able to come up with possibly cures or at least, uh, definitely strengthen up the be you know the therapies that are out there so if you had two parents who had a predisposition to autism, but they did themselves didn't have autism, but ha- then they would probably have a greater likelihood of having a child with autism, or do we not know that yet? Um, yes. I mean, again, the more the predisposition, the higher the, you know, the uh, possibilities or the, the probabilities that they could have a child with autism. That, the research does indicate that. All right. So you now. All right. We've. I think we've defined it pretty well. Unless you think we've left anything out, anything significant out in terms of of how to recognize autism in your child. Uh, once you've done that, then then where then where do we go from there? I mean, because if this is this is a huge problem, um, one in every one hundred and ten children in America is diagnosed with an autism spectrum disorder. We've got a huge problem problem on our hands. Not only in terms of behavior, but financially and institutionally and in school, so then what do we do? <laughs> yeah, the, the, quick, the, the biggest thing in, in, you know, to emphasize and the biggest message I want to give out is early diagnosis and early treatment. The earlier we can catch it, the less delayed the children are. We can catch, you know, with, with good quality therapy, they could, you know, have the, the possibility of catching up. Unfortunately, due to you know, the years of us catching up on understanding autism, diagnosing autism, a lot of times we weren't catching the kids until later, in, until they were in their five, six, seven years of age. And by then, the developmental gap has, has grown. So there's a lot more catch-up to do, a lot more work that needs to be done. And as they continue to chronologically age, we're still trying to catch up behind that wheel of development. So when the child, when when a parent has any signs or any belief that their child is delayed or possibly meeting the autism symptomatology, looking at the criteria, they need to get into their physician, get a diagnosis or get a referral to a specialist to get a diagnosis so that if, if, you know, they are on the spectrum or there is a need that they can get treatment right away. Vincent, how, 
is the problem of false diagnosis. And I mean false diagnosis in the sense that maybe you do have a child that is a little bit slow in development. You know, children develop at different uh, at different times, at different levels. I know there is a broad spectrum of normality, but still some kids have are introverted in terms of their personality. And then they get diagnosed, well, because we have now we're much more aware of autism, and so they get diagnosed as autistic when they're really not. Is there a danger in that? Um, I don't think there's a danger because I think using, um, you know, the, the scientifically approved treatments, um, applied behavior analysis, even if your child's introverted or your child is delayed in their skills, using these, te- these techniques or this treatment, it's going to increase their skill level to, to where they're going to be able to be function, you know, functional or be able to be comfortable in society. Either it be, it's just, um, giving them more language or giving them more abilities to, to, um, uh, uh, socialize with their parents or giving them more abilities just to be able to learn, it's going to make the child more successful regardless if their diagnosis actually is autism or more pervasive developmental disorder, which is a very mild form of autism that has symptoms of autism but not quite all the symptoms that would fall under the diagnostic category. So what are we talking about? Are we talking about cure or are we talking about recovery from autism? Well, we don't use the word cure because we don't, there's no medical basis in finding a, finding the cure. There is a lot of research that's looking for that, but looking at the word recovery, what we define as recovery is, you know, giving the child the ability to function just like their typical peers in their common environment. It'd be school, it'd be Boy Scouts, it'd be Girl Scouts, it'd be the soccer field, that their academic test scores fall within the standard norms. Um, as them as their peers, and also that they're able to do, you know, as I said, they're able to perform and to relate in the common environments that they do with their peers. That is what we consider recovery because now they're acting, behaving, interacting just as their peers are um, with with very little difference. Let's talk about specific families because I think it's always good to put it in a context. And, and we'll start with a family that they their child's been diagnosed with autism and they're perhaps two other children in the family. How does this affect the family socially, psychologically, um, financially, in your experience? Give us an example. For years, I've always said that autism is a family disorder. It's not an individual disorder because the entire family dynamic changes and the entire family dynamic has to continue to um, to evolve and continue to change as treatments begin for the one child who does have autism or the multiple children that have autism because sometimes you'll have family sets that have three kids and two are on the spectrum and one isn't or three are on the spectrum. Um, so, you know, family diets, I mean, it's crazy because you can go anywhere from family diets need to change to the way they arrange their house to the way, you know, to the different therapies they have to go to, to the different treatments that they have to go to, um, you know, what schools, special schools, special, um, classrooms that they have to attend. It takes the entire family to be able to work together to be able to change the environment so that that child can learn grow, um, and be the best person that they're able to be. And like I said, it can go anywhere from, you know, simple things to just the way they arrange their house so that it makes it more comforting to their child or more functional for their child. Give us an example. What would that be? Let's say, you know, you have your typical house and your three bedrooms and kitchen, bathroom, I mean, dining room. How do you change it? What do you have to do for the child who has autism? Well, some, I mean, it could be anything as simple as, you know, the, the, the brightness of the light. Sometimes the lights will be so bright that it causes the child to, 
you know, um, to feel uncomfortable. They have a lot of sensory um, input issues where the lights might be too bright and it makes them feel very uncomfortable, which makes them defensive and they're not able to learn in that environment. Some kids are very sensitive to sounds, you know, loud TVs, loud vacuums, loud toilet flushing um, that puts the, you know, will immediately spin them into a 45-minute tantrum. So they have to make sure that they... Um, you know, monitor and filter out the different sounds that are going through their houses. And it can be something as simple as just um, making sure that the environment is is adaptable to learning, meaning that there's a lot of learning opportunities that are going on throughout the house, um, either it be language or it be social skills, um, that the family together is is working together in that environment to make sure that every learning opportunity isn't missed for that child. I mean, you have, just in just making this, or describing this to me, I've thought of so many things, I guess from a social work perspective, but I just want to tackle some of them because you're describing autism as a family uh, disease or as a family condition, uh, and it certainly is. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking of my own family. Um, I've had, I have three boys who have grown up, but if one of them had autism and I had to do all these things like change, uh, you know, how bright the lights would be or how loud the toilet would flush, as you mentioned, or not having loud noises. And you can imagine a household with three boys is a lot of loud noises. The resentment that would come from the other children to have to live in that kind of an environment, which really wasn't conducive to them particularly, but only to this one child. Difficult stuff to handle with a family, I would imagine. Absolutely. And, and, coming, and I'm a marriage and family therapist, so I, I'm right in your same boat. So coming from our perspective... A lot of what we also do in, in what a, an essential part of treatment is family support. We need to be able to educate the families on how to talk to siblings, on how to continue to educate them um, along their developmental you know, um, growth, to understand their sibling, to understand the needs of the sibling, and to understand this isn't taking away from their needs, and to be able to coach parents on how to make sure that they do attend and individualize their other, their other children so that they feel included, they feel special, they feel, you know, independent and individualized like you would any of our typical developing uh, children. And I think one of the, the essential parts is making sure that that's a constant education, that education is constantly developing as all the children in the family are developing and making sure that everyone feels not only included in the, into the family dynamic, into the treatment, but also feeling individualized themselves as we would, like I said, as we would with any of our kids. Yeah, as if it, this is a family disorder, and boy, I don't think we can emphasize enough that if your child has been diagnosed with autism or you think he or she may be, uh, you really need to get the whole family involved in this process right from the be- beginning. It's just important as, as the, the autistic child is for the rest of the children so you can you know, get a, a grip on all of these kind of behavioral stuff that's going to happen within the family in the beginning, or you can have a lot of problems. Talk to us about treatment and cost, because you know is, tre- is treatment available at, for children with um, uh, autistic disorders and/or families that isn't so costly? Does insurance cover it? What do you do? Somebody's listening to the show and they say, you know, hey, this really rings I, true. I think maybe my kid may have autism. Where would they start? Where do they go? Yes, there's definitely. I mean, the, uh, definitely scientifically proven, you know, um, successful therapies to help children with autism. And you were talking about expense and coverage, and that's been, especially here. I'm, we're based out in California, has been one of the biggest problems as of recently due to the economic change and the economic downturn, because most of the treatments were in some sort state-funded, either be through the school districts or be through what we have is called regional centers, which are 
centers that have been developed by the state to be able to provide services for individuals with developmental disabilities. Um, as the budgets obviously continue to decrease, the amount of um, alloc- money allocated for those services also begin- has begun to decrease. So it's been a continual battle for families to be able to find affordable um, ways to get to get the valuable, successful treatment. Now, the good news is is most states are passing laws that are man- mandating that insurance cover. Um, cover these services. I know here in California, beginning in July, it'll be another one of the states that are mandated coverage um, states that the insurance companies will be able to, or will now be able to start paying for ABA services, which is fantastic news across the board because that means the treatments will be able to be more widespread to families who, you know, before were unable to, to ascertain the services. Here's the big question. Someone listening saying, you know, we don't have enough money in our healthcare system at all. Why should we care about children with autism? We've got a lot of other things we have to just to take care of, our basic needs, and we're just going to have to let uh, families deal with this on their own. And insurance coverage, if they get that, it's going to make our premiums go higher. So what do we say? Why is it important for us to address this issue with children with autism disorder and their families? What's well, in terms just, of the rest just, of society? Sure, just like any other medical disability or disorder. These are functional people. These are functional kids. These are kids that are going to be able to be functional in society if they get the you know the correct treatments early on. And these are kids in family, you know, in young adults, and, and we all know a young adult, or we know an, uh, 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 an adult that has autism right now. These are oftentimes individuals that didn't get therapy, so they are they you know they are struggling, or they do need a lot of care. They do need a lot of aftercare as they get older. But as we said earlier, these are, with early treatments and, and early diagnosing, these are kids that have every opportunity to be like your normal kid next door. They're able to live a, a very healthy life. They're able to lead independent individual lives. Um, but it takes a lot of work. It does take a lot of work, and it does take a lot of effort. But every kid and every child has that opportunity and has that, you know, that right to be able to live their dreams just as you and I are. What about, that's a good answer, and you know, we have a few more minutes left, and I know there's another diagnosis that's very often associated with autism called Asperger's. What is Asperger's syndrome? Because I know that is somewhat related to autism. Right. Asperger's is more of the high-end, what we would, you know, would say like a high-functioning autistic. And what it is, it's, it's, part of, it's, it's individuals that have a, um, not excessive, but um, uh, significant social delays. They don't have the language delays that you would see with an autistic child, but they do have some of the repetitive behaviors and you know routine type of behaviors, and they have very very high amounts of difficulty ascertaining um, social skills and and picking up social cues and being able to use those skills to be able to be functional independently. But yet, their language skills or their language abilities fall within you know typical norms. Sounds like a lot of engineers that I know. That's <laughs> <laughs> funny you said that. Yes, there's there's a few you know correlated jobs that we see that uh, that could fall you know that many functionally you know functional adults are Aspergers and they're you know engineers, computer programmers, you know software engineers, those types of things that are living perfectly happy lives, um, but you know still struggle socially. Yeah. Uh, 
and and I remember, and I think maybe, perhaps this was in graduate school. I don't know. Someone had said to me, "If you have, you're kind of a high functioning uh, person, and you have some kind of a disorder or a diagnosis, but you put yourself in the right kind of job that kind of utilizes those skills, you'll be okay." Like in this case, as Asperger's and engineering, and I'm sure there are a lot of other jobs that are similar if you if you think of them. Um, oh yeah, oh yeah, yeah, and and that you can function and function well. Well, there's actually, I mean, it's funny you brought that up because I just read an article the other day. There's a company out in, in where I live here in Orange County, a software developing company that high, specifically targets and hires um, young adults that have Asperger's because the type of repetitive job that they have, the type of job that needs the intense focus that they need um, is, is right into that population. They're able to do this job over and over again. They have a, an incredible amount of focus on the job, and there's no chatter. There's no socials. There's no talk at the water cooler because they it's difficult for them. So they all focus on their work, get their work done, go ahead and hightail it home. But it's very functional. It's, they're all very happy. They're all on, you know, the satisfaction of their job is always very high. And the products that they're developing are fantastic. Yeah, and, I, and can you think of other jobs, too? I think that's a great example. Well, perhaps then we need to be aware, I mean, be more aware of that we don't necessarily need or want to change people at the other end of the spectrum, let's say, who have mild cases of Asperger, because there really is a place in society for them, and, uh, and I'm sure in terms of relationships as well, because um, not all of us are, you know, want to be on the radio or talking or <laughs> media consultants <laughs> or whatever the rest of us do. Uh, right, right. Yeah, it's an, I mean, I don't think that you could... A- advertise for that, but it's an interesting uh, it's an interesting point. So have we, uh, now, you know, we have we left anything out? Something that you know, that I know. You, would you like to talk a little bit about uh, your specific program at uh, recoverautism.com is where everybody can go. Uh, I'm talking to Vincent Redmond, who is the regional director for the Center for Autism and Related Disorders. And you're out in California, but I assume that there are also a lot of other places because we're the uh, you know we're uh, we're in New York. So um, right, we have, we have two two offices in New York. Yes. And just go online to the website, telephone number, or yeah, that's the that's what we have we have centers all around the world and centers all throughout the U.S. and we do have two in in New York State um, currently. So to look for a center near you, definitely go to our website. As well as we do have some other products for remote locations, location people who live outside of where uh, a center would be, so that they can possibly you know. Um, enter our, our curriculum, get parts of our curriculum, and be able to do start therapy at home, be able to start therapy for these kids who are in areas, remote areas, that don't have access to treatment. We have given them the access to the treatment um, so that they can start now and not wait, as we said earlier, because it's crucial that they start as soon as possible. And I would imagine, I mean, since all of these kids, we hope or we assume, go to school, do you outreach to all of the schools in 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 the country? I mean, are they aware of your program or the programs? If, if teachers have, you know, some they feel that perhaps one of their kids has, uh, suffers from autism, that they can access information from, you know, local facilities that are in their yes. area. I mean, the schools would be a first line of contact. That is what I'm trying to say. Right. Yes, we do. We um, we had um, what we what we've been doing is um, contacting. We had a, a, a promotion skills across America, and we were contacting as many school districts as we can nationwide to be able to introduce them to not only the the clinical treatment for autism, but also our our um, product skills, which is again is is the product that's able to give families individual treatments, give them the the 
the not only the knowledge and teaching them how to teach it, but also giving them access to you know uh, effective curriculum to help teach their own children using using applied behavioral techniques. Um, teaching them the skills that they need to be able to be successful, as well as ways to start decreasing some of those excessive behaviors that are hindering them from learning. And we have been trying to, everybody, we've been trying to, you know, uh, contacting schools, uh, state, state officials, doctors, lawyers, anyone that's going to have access or have some type of role that they're going to play in the, in the recovery or the treat, treatment of the children, we've been contacting and trying to get as much word out as possible about the types of treatments that are out there. Terrific. Well, I thank you so much for being on the show today because it's obviously a very important topic. And, uh, you know, April is Autism Awareness Month. We did it in February. I think that's okay because we can do it all year round. Really important. Regional Director for the Center for Autism and Related Disorders, Vincent Redman. And you can uh, contact uh, the center at recoverautism.com. Thank you so much. Thank you, and have a great day. Yeah, you too. Uh, My next guest is uh, coming up. We're going to just take a couple minutes break. Her uh, book is called Giving Voice to Value, Speaking Your Mind When You Know What's Right. Mary C. Gentile. Don't go away. We'll be back in a minute. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. Are you ready to live a powerful life based in vitality, joyfulness, and satisfaction? Is it time to take action and design a life you've always known you could live? Tune it to Design Your Life, Coaching for New Choices with Master Certified Coach Patricia Hirsch. You'll explore what stops you from going after your dreams and be supported in a future you design to pull you forward from the present. Tune in every Tuesday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time for Design Your Life, Coaching for New Choices on the Voice America Variety Channel. The inner workings of the mind and body are a fascinating study into who we are, our motivations, creativity, wants and fears is everyone capable of great atrocities as well as great accomplishments what haunts or helps us pursue the things we desire we all want to know why we do the things we do and what makes us unique but even more we want to know what to do next for answers to these questions tune in to the mind of the matter with dr susan hickman on the voice america variety channel every thursday at 9 a.m eastern time 6 a.m pacific Join us every week as we help you master the mind of the matter. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. We're back. I'm Catherine Zox, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show this morning here Wednesday, 10 to 11 Eastern Time on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. My next guest is Mary C. Gentili. Her new book is called Giving Your giving voice to value, speaking your mind when you know what's right. Not always easy to do. Well, she says it is easier to do than we think it is. So how to speak your mind when you know what's right. That's really important, especially today. How can you effectively stand up for your values when pressured by your boss, customers, shareholders to do exactly the opposite? 
And in her book, she draws on actual business experience as well as social science research educator and consultant. Uh, she has been a consultant for Harvard. But she she was uh, had a ten year a ten year tenure at Harvard Business School, and she consults on management, education, and values driven leadership. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Mary. Thank you. It's a it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks, Catherine. You know, I don't know how many people have actually written book on values. We talk about ethics all the time and philosophy 101 and all those kinds of things that I took in school. <laughs> and I'm a social worker, so I, I am somewhat familiar with ethics and values. But what are we talking about when you say giving voice to values? Why do we need to do that today? And what do you mean by values? And how does this fit into our culture, specifically in terms of our jobs and our work and our performances and the choices we make? Yes. Well, you know, I've been working in this field for, uh, oh, about 30 years now, and I started out, as you mentioned, at Harvard Business School. I'm now at Babson College in Boston. And, you know, my work has always revolved around values-driven leadership, trying to figure out ways to help people to lead from that core center of what they believe is right in themselves and still be effective and, and, not, um, and not sabotage themselves in their careers. And one of the things that I saw in my own work with, with uh, educating MBA students but also working in corporations is that um, often, you know, with the best of intentions, what I and, and many of my colleagues were doing was spoke, we're, we're focusing with, uh, on the issues of what I call awareness and analysis. In other words, we were, we were introducing future leaders and managers to uh, the kinds of ethical conflicts they might encounter in the workplace. So they'd be aware of them. So they'd recognize them when they found them in the workplace. And then we, they were teaching them ways to analyze them, to figure out what is the right thing to do. And although I think both of those things are important, what we failed to do is to go to the next step and to say, once you know what you think is right, once you recognize the challenge, how do you get it done? How do you act on it? And so what I was trying to do is to create a curriculum that would complement what we already do and that would give people literally the opportunity to craft and practice scripts and action plans for how you might get this done. And we did this by collecting stories from people who had, in fact, found ways to act on their values effectively and to try and see if there were any patterns we could detect but primarily to just give people the opportunity to hear themselves saying these words in front of their peers and trying to make uh, their arguments and their positions more coherent and more effective, more respectful of the people they were disagreeing with, and so on. So in other words, Mary, we're making it so that people actually practice Practice making the right choices, value-given choices. Exactly, practice, practice. exactly. Instead Using that muscle, what do you call it? Like, it comes automatically. Kind of we have that muscle memory from, for putting it into practice. That's right. It becomes a default. It becomes a sort of moral muscle memory. Moral um, muscle memory. I got to research. We know from research in social psychology and in cognitive neurosciences that actually if you practice things, that's actually... Uh, one of the most effective ways to change behaviors. Um, and Why do we so, need to change you know, behaviors? But we were realizing that what we were literally practicing in the classroom too often were all the reasons why you couldn't 
act on your values. You know, we would bring in these situations that were really complicated and thorny, and, you know, most of the time the discussion would be spent around, well, what is the right thing? Is it really the best thing to put this, uh, you know, this pipeline through the pristine wilderness because it's going to help other people, or is that going to be environmentally, you know, destructive and therefore we shouldn't? And so people would walk out of the classroom suffering from what one faculty member at Harvard told me. He said, the, the students walk out with ethics fatigue. <laughs> you know? And that's not exactly an empowering place to be. Right, but so I these are the stuff at the you there. Because you know, have... And looking at the kinds of things that were leading us to, you know, slap our foreheads and say, you know, what the heck are they teaching in business schools? Those were usually not these complex you know, uh, really thorny issues. There were often cases of outright fraud and illegality, times when people did think they knew what was right, but the fact was they weren't sure they could do anything about it, um, either for fear of retaliation or fear of futility. So, okay, we're talking about putting into practice the, these ethics and these values and not making it just an ec- academic exercise in business school. My question is, people who are listening listeners who not necessarily went to business school but are affected by the decisions on Wall Street, as we are hearing today. Um, Why is it important that leaders, business leaders, Wall Street and other businesses, obviously, um, are able to do this? Give us a reason for it. I mean, because it seems like it's obvious, but why do we need to... Why do we need to hear this? Why do okay, we... so let yeah. me answer that in two ways. The first okay. way is to answer directly what you were saying. Why is it important to do this? Why is it important to find ways to be effective in acting on our values? And I think, you know, there's lots of reasons for that that if we just look around, we can begin to see. We see, you know, the, the crisis in confidence, the lack of trust that um, increasingly um, investors as well as consumers have for major corporations who they hold responsible for the kinds of challenges that we've faced in the last few years. We see the political fallout of this. You know, um, the marketplace uh, has become a kind of political football and, and everyone stumbling over themselves to find the best way to use the, the very real pain that many folks are feeling as a way to um, bolster their campaigns for election, in either locally or, or nationally. Um, and then there's the global implications. You know, we see that people make decisions with very short-term and ill-advised objectives. And, and these days, the world is such an interdependent place that those implications don't just, if they go wrong, they don't just hurt you and me. They, you know, they, they have implications across, uh, across the globe. So there's lots of reasons why this is important at the mega level, the meta level. There's also reasons organizationally. You know, we find increasingly um, that if you actually believe what your boss says is what he or she is going to do, this becomes both a morale booster, but it also makes the organization more effective. It makes it more efficient and productive because there isn't a lot of time spent second-guessing and getting it wrong and spinning our wheels. But that's sort of the... You know the 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 making an argument for why it's important to do the right thing. I would try and flip that question around, though, and that's a lot of what we do with giving voice to values. Is we say, you know, let's actually start from the assumption that a lot of us, not everyone, but a lot of us, actually would like to behave in a way that's consistent with our values. So instead of instead of spending all our time trying to make the argument why you should. 
let's actually try and help people figure out how they can. Um, I started to feel tired of hitting my head against the wall, sort of trying to just come up with arguments to justify uh, acting on, on, uh, on, in an ethical way. And then I sort of reframed the question and I said, what if, what if what we're really talking about is how to act on my values? That's something I already want to do. So in the book, and I want to point this out, in the book you really do give people, we don't have to go through each one of these because they can get the book and read it, but how we actually can uh, evaluate our own values, where we stand, and really get an understanding of what the right thing to do for us is. Now, I want to give you an, but you also gave the example, because I think this makes it real for people, about the, say, the BP oil spill. And I talk about this because you say the, that particular oil spill um, was caused not just by a few people who did wrong things, but by thousands of people who didn't stand up for, for what they believed in. And so it created, a, created this enormous worldwide international problem. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, I actually, I was asked to do an op-ed on that issue. And what you just said is the premise I started with, that it's not just about a few people making a poor choice, that it's about a lot of people who didn't speak up. Then, however, I started to do the research. And I started to uncover that, in fact, there were people, at engineers at BP, there were people at Halliburton, there were people at Transocean, there were people at the, at the government agency, MMS, who did, in fact, try and raise the alarm. And what I started to realize is, you know, it's not just about, people often say it's about moral courage, you know, speaking out. It's not just about moral courage. It's about moral competence. It's about figuring out how can we say these things in a way that they're actually going to get heard and have an impact. You can imagine what happened when those people spoke up. You know, they, they either pulled their boss aside quietly or they spoke up in a meeting, you know, but in, e- in either case you can imagine that, they, that people were worried about the issues they were raising, that they may have silenced them, that they may have said, you're slowing us down, we have, you know, time pressures, we have um, financial pressures, um, you're overreacting, um, and, and so like popcorn popping up and then getting, you know, just pushed down, there was no real impact. But if, in fact, we spend time actually working together to figure out if you have an issue like this that is actually a large and systemic issue, it's not just about, you know, one individual uh, who's making a poor choice, then you need to think about larger systemic ways of addressing it. Maybe you need to really think in terms of doing some research, building a coalition, um, working behind the scenes to gather people. If you look at the example of WorldCom a few years ago, here was a case where uh, Cynthia Raleigh, the executive within the firm who raised the issues, she spent a long time before she spoke out gathering data, making the case, coming up with situations to help and understand what was going on. And, in fact, when she did raise the issue, not only did it get taken seriously, but eventually they found a way for the company to um, be restructured and, and survive. And a lot of the reason behind taking the approach I'm talking about is that we don't want to just blow the whistle. Blowing the whistle is a dangerous thing to do, both for the individual whistleblower and for the organization. What I'd like, I mean, sometimes it's necessary, of course, if lives are at stake and time is short. But what we'd like to do is help people figure out constructive ways to raise issues in enough time and in um, a careful enough way that people can actually both preserve their careers and their organizations can thrive. Well, I think that's really important, so important that I 
as I'm listening to you, why don't we start doing that on a, on a you know, a level that's appropriate for in, in elementary school, middle school, and high school? You teach these kinds of courses. Don't wait till you have to get your MBA at Harvard or Wharton. My, my son recently graduated from Wharton, and I, I told him I was going to be interviewing you today because we were on vacation last week, and I said, how many ethics courses? He, t- he took a half a course, I think, was required. Yeah. And it was taught in a similar yeah, way. That that's you... absolutely right. And, yeah. in fact, one of the reasons why we designed Giving Voice to Values the way we did is that it's set up in such a way that it doesn't have to be just taught in an ethics class because it's based on practice and because it's not based on making arguments that rely on philosophers, but actually it's based on making arguments that rely rely on the business you're in, the discipline you're working in, whether it's marketing or finance. It's a kind of uh, uh, approach that can be easily integrated across your curriculum, which is part of our agenda. But your question about why don't we do this earlier, I totally agree. You know, when I, when I give my – I've been traveling around the world uh, presenting this approach, you know, several times a week in different places, and invariably there's someone who speaks up at some point and says, you know, this would be really helpful in working with my adolescent son or my adolescent yeah. daughter. And I was at the U.S. Air Force Academy last week at their National Character and Leadership Symposium, and one of our hosts spoke up and said, you know, ever since I read Giving Voice to Values, I've been working with my kids. And they are now, you know, practicing their scripts and, <laughs> and their action plans for the kinds of values conflicts they encounter. Do you, you think there are, Mary, I have to ask you, do you think there are different... I want you to address this cultural values because you're talking about you've been tra- going around the world because different countries, I think, at least my experience in traveling, you know, there are cultural values associated to the way you do business and how, um, uh, this is the first time I brought up the word honest, but the choices that you make, the honest choices you make, a uh, difference in, in India and China and the United States and Russia and how do you, what do you do about that? Let's say you're in a business, because business is international, obviously. And you're sitting down in a meeting with somebody from a different country, and they have a whole different set of values in terms of the way they do business. And perhaps it isn't this, or it is important that you're going around the world because they need to (laughs) avail themselves of this information. But do you know what I'm saying? Then what do you do? I absolutely do. And I have to say that when I first created this approach, a number of people came up to me and said, well, Mary, this is all well and good in the U.S. and maybe Europe, but it's really not going to fly in a lot of other parts of the world. And I thought, you know, maybe they're right. But then I started getting invited to India and to China and to Africa and and to South America and um, getting requests to translate this into Russian and things like that. And so I thought, well, you know, they're inviting me. I'm going to go and test it and see what happens. And what was really fascinating to me because it's gone over extremely well, bottom line, and uh, we're now being used on seven continents around the world. So, you know, it's, it's, it has done that. But what I, when I try and think about why, I think it's for a couple reasons. I remember when I gave my first presentation in China a few years ago, and I presented to almost 100 faculty from all over China um, uh, who all teach in business schools. And, um, you know, I, I wasn't really sure. There was simultaneous translation. I wasn't sure how it was going over. But my host came up to me afterwards, and she said, you know, that went over extremely well. And she said, you know, there's a couple reasons. One is that when we talk about giving voice to values, we start from the premise that you already have values. And what we're trying to do is to help you act on them effectively. So it's not Mary Gentile coming in from Boston to tell you what's right in Shanghai. It's actually me saying, you know, human beings have a core set of values. And, and, you know, most of the research suggests that although there are cultural differences in 
in history and geography and politics and religion that lead us to have uh, certain ways of doing things, that there, is, there still is a core set of values, the philosophers call them hypernorms, that are very widely shared across all cultures and across all times. But the trick is, it's a really, really short list. And so I can't go in there and assume that you're going to value everything I value or that you may value the same things that I do, but you're going to express it and act on it in a very different way. And so what we do is we start from the premise that there is this short list of shared values, which include things like integrity and honesty and compassion. But then we're going to talk about how, first of all, does the issue I'm addressing rise to that level or is it just a personal preference? If it does rise to that level, then how can I talk about it in a way that you, coming from India or China or, or Vietnam, are going to be able to hear it and understand it? And so we've actually created cases now. I'm working with faculty in India. There's a wonderful woman in Goa, Ranjini Swami, for example, who, is devel- who are developing Giving Voice to Values cases and materials based on Indian-specific examples. I just came back from two two-day programs in Bangalore and in Delhi with the National Entrepreneurship Network of India, meeting with Indian entrepreneurs, talk about people who are under a lot of market pressure, as well as faculty who teach Indian entrepreneurs, to talk about these issues. And we walked into the room, and they were all kind of smirking, saying, Mary, you just don't understand. There's a lot of corruption in this environment. There's a lot of things we just have to do. But by the end of the program, they were all working together to say, okay, okay, yeah, right, there is a lot of corruption. But what if we wanted to figure out a way to behave in a way and be effective and avoid engaging in some of those things? And there was such incitement and enthusiasm in the room because people want to find a way to do that. It's inconvenient for them to have to, you know, pay bribes and, you know, wait months and months or year to get their licenses to operate. We worked with a... Um, so you're saying, I want to stop you there, because I want to, there's one thing in the book, you're saying there, inherently there are certain core values that we want to act on. We just have to kind of learn how to do them, whether we're from China or the United States or Vietnam. Because one of the things in the book, I don't know, was in, uh, in one of the chapters, you said, this is just making it kind of an individual assessment, but sit down and think about in your work situation where you've made a choice that perhaps wasn't yeah. according to your values and then and start from there and then think about the ones that you made, choices you've made in your work situation that were. And so I started doing that myself because, uh, you know, you think of social workers and psychologists and perhaps those are fields where you think that people are always making the right choice or value-driven joy, uh, choices. Um, and uh, this is from many, many years. I'm not going to tell you how many years ago. I, my uh, boss supervisor called me in, and I was, had just recently had gotten my graduate degree, and I was working at this big hospital and wanted my opinion about another coworker who had done something unethical with a patient, not illegal but unethical. Yep. And this stays with me over all these years, and, of course, it brought it up after reading your book and wanted to know my opinion. Now, it was a good friend of mine, and so he wanted to know whether I thought this person should... Uh, be fired. And oh, I I said no. But really, mm-hmm. if it hadn't been she, mm-hmm. I would have said yes. Mm-hmm. And because, I mean, that was, what kind of, you know, and that was a decision that was really not based on my uh, voicing my own values. But at the same time, I was so conflicted about telling him that I thought she should lose her job and I couldn't do it. I mean, I don't, those are the kinds of things that you know, one is confronted with on a daily basis in different work or job situations. And it has always bothered me. 
Absolutely. You know, uh, we, we sometimes think these ethical challenges are, you know, the big issues that come up once a BP career. Oil but, field, you know, not once necessarily. you start paying attention, there's all these little decisions we make on an almost daily basis, and it's not just at work. And, and that exercise you talked about where we invite people to think about a time when they've acted on their values effectively and also a time when they've not is one of the most popular parts of this approach because, first of all, it establishes that what we're doing here is not trying to sort out the good people from the bad people. You know, we've all acted on our values effectively sometimes. We're all capable of it. And we've all failed to do it sometimes. And so what the point is here is how do we figure out what made it easier for us when we did and what made it harder when we didn't? And those are predictable things. Like the example you gave, you know, there was a loyalty conflict there, you know, and that's a really predictable one. But we, as we talk about in the book, there are ways to reframe that challenge so that you can so find a way to see yourself as, as being loyal and also being consistent with your own values around integrity. And that's the kind of thing that because these issues are not unique, because they're predictable, then there's a value in, in, in actually practicing not only what you would do, but how you could think about it in a way that will make you feel more comfortable acting, you know, and, and, and also find a way to talk about it so that hopefully you don't always have to sacrifice the friendship. Um, yeah. So, uh, yeah, well, that's I could, exactly you know, right. With only a couple minutes left, I could ask you exactly what should I have done or how should I have changed that scenario. Well, you know, I, I, I don't know exactly what was at stake, so I'm going to talk at the general level. But, you know, when it comes to issues about honesty versus loyalty, that's one of the core conflicts that many of us encounter. Um, uh, Rush Kidder, um, who runs an ethics program in Maine, has identified a number of those core conflicts. And honesty versus loyalty is a big one. What we talk is to think about loyalty. What does loyalty really mean? Does loyalty mean that I'm going to do what I think is best for my friend in the moment? Or does it really mean that I want to find a way to behave toward this person in a way that I think is going to be best for us in the long term? And so sometimes it means understanding, um, you know, can I help this friend to avoid being in this situation? Can I help this friend to understand why, how important this choice was? and why it was so wrong so that they don't end up falling into that again because, you know, there's not always going to be someone there to pick up the pieces. It also can mean if a friend comes to you and asks you before the fact um, to help them to cheat or to do something that you feel is wrong, there are we have scripts that people can practice with in terms of thinking about I will, I will help you to accomplish the goals you want to accomplish in a way that feels as if it, um, you know, it, it maintains my own integrity. And one of the things we point out is how loyal is someone being to you if they're asking you to violate your own values? And so it's not that you have to accuse the person of that, but it's more a matter of understanding and reframing so that we don't keep framing this choice in a way that means we don't think we have an option. Clearly this is something that stayed with you and bothered you. Um, so it's worth spending some time. One of the things that we found from this work is that a little bit of time spent, those same arguments can be used again and again throughout our lives because we keep encountering the same values conflicts. You know, yeah, That's true, and that's a good note to end on because we only have a couple minutes, but sure. uh, I think the point that you just made at the end, we do get into, the, we have only one minute that we get into uh, 
you know, it's an either-or situation, and it's not. It never is. There are lots of options, lots of choices, lots of ways to analyze and evaluate the situation. But uh, let's, um, giving voices to values, you can buy it at bookstores everywhere, online. And do you have a website, Mary, that we can go to? for? Yes, uh, it's uh, yeah. uh, com. Great. It's great talking to you today. Thank you. Good talking to you. Thank you very much. Okay. Have a good day. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Catherine Zox on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. As I said, listen to us every Wednesday live at 10 to 11 Eastern Time. And uh, my last guest was giving voice to values, Mary C. Gentilly. Um, Have a great week. Hope you enjoyed the morning, and uh, we'll see you next Wednesday. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. 